You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. There's something good about being able to approach a subject like marriage and uh, recognize that somehow we're all more alike than we are different and that we, we can actually find a little bit of soothing for our, our wounds when we realize that uh, there's other people that face the same kinds of challenges that we face. And so I give that to you. Let me just share with you a few things before we begin to look. Uh, uh, I, there are a few books on marriage that might make for really good summer reading. And uh, let me just share with you a couple of them. Uh, first of all, I, I, I pulled this one off the shelf just because uh, I had my son-in-law read this before he married my daughter. <laughs> Poor guy, eh? <laughs> it's, it's called Loving Your Wife Like Christ Loves the Church. I, I thought we couldn't go wrong with that one. So, so Tori read that with me, and we talked a long time ago when uh, over 30 years ago, Pat and I read this book by Mike Mason called The Mystery of Marriage. Great great book, uh, Mystery of Marriage. And uh, some of you that were at the marriage retreat in March that our church sponsored, we, uh, we gave this book to you. It's called Love and Respect, uh, The Love She Most Desires, The Respect He Desperately Needs. And a uh, very good book, uh, a great read for couples to go through together. Uh, I can't even pronounce the guy's last name, Dr. Emerson Egerix. <clears throat> and, um, and then also this book uh, by John Piper, This Momentary Marriage. Uh, this has been my most recent uh, good book to read on marriage. And uh, uh, again, I think we gave it out at the marriage retreat. Um, I thought I, I have a couple of copies in my bookshelf, and I thought today I'd give a little game here before we begin. So, so put up your hand if you've been married more than 25 years, okay? Okay, now we're going to go up, okay? Now put it up, if, keep it up, sorry, if you're more than 30 years more than 35 years, more than 40 years, more than 45 years, more than 50 years. Okay, they're dropping now. More than 55? Oh, okay, I see. Okay, there's 56. Okay, we have a winner over here. <laughs> Gears, could you give this book to them? Oh, oh, there's one more over here. Oh, more than 56, more than 57, 63. Oh, my goodness, there we have a winner. Oh, God bless you. 64, okay, stand to be corrected. Hey, after that many years, you can forget a year or two, and it's not going to make a lot of difference. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, God bless you. That's, that's, that's a long time together. And uh, amen. I spent considerable time in the last 10 months uh, preparing young couples for marriage. Uh, some of you are here this morning that have been married recently or are getting married this summer or fall. And uh, we, we pastors uh, take it very seriously. We, we love to do that. I seriously mean it. I love to do that. I love to get to know the couple better. I love to walk through the deeper, intricate issues of coming from two different families and having to have these two streams join as one and, and watch the turbulent waters figure themselves out in the first year, years of marriage. It's an incredible privilege and uh, yet an incredible opportunity for sanctification, isn't it, for God to do his work in our lives as we see uh, the rough edges get knocked out, and as we see that God is indeed is at work in that fundamental key relationship for, called marriage. I uh, came across a paper recently that, that Pat and I did over 30 years ago in our premarital days, and 
I, I, was just, I just happened to be cleaning out a drawer, and I found this, and I, it, it had said, on one side it said, reasons why I am marrying Pat, and on the other side it said, reasons why Pat is marrying me. And <clears throat> she made me promise not to share some of the details. <laughs> but there were five reasons uh, listed under why I am marrying Pat, and four of those related to spiritual life, gifts and abilities, personality traits, and ways of relating to other people. And just one of the five related to her external physical beauty and qualities that I liked. And I think that's the part she didn't want me to share details about. And, and you know, it's interesting because uh, as you think about it, you folks who are maybe not yet married and are thinking that one day you're looking to be married. Have you thought through what are the things that you're looking for in a spouse, in a husband or wife? Uh, maybe it'd be good to think about that before you meet Mr. or Miss Wonderful. And uh, then you maybe be able to take that list that you make and distinguish between what are the negotiables in that list and what are the things that, that, that are non-negotiable that you cannot compromise on. I spoke with someone recently that actually made a list like that, and I, I kind of added to it, and I, I, we came up with some questions like this. It's, so think about these questions. Now, how is this person at serving others or doing things they don't want to do? Just kind of think about that. How, how, is, how are they at that? Another, uh, the list that this person gave me said, does this person fast? I thought, interesting, do they fast? Because fasting is a demonstration of the ability to say no to something for a greater good. Interesting. What does that discipline reflect? Are they in control of their wants and desires, or are they evidencing that they are being controlled by some of those wants and desires? Do they talk about themselves too much? It's an interesting uh, comment. And how do they talk about other people when they're not around? Interesting thing to observe. How do they respond if they lose at something? And are they good winners? That's the thing to think about. Are they lazy? Do they use their time and their money wisely? And then how do they handle being wrong and also the need to apologize? Great, great questions, really, to think about as you think about uh, the person that God might be leading you to marry. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul talks about some of these very things that would give rise to these qualities that we see in, in people. Paul is talking in Ephesians 5 about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week. And the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit are this praiseworthy gratitude to God, this, this incredible edifying conversation that builds others up and is willing to, to be submissive, that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is the, one of the evidences of God filling our lives. And so that's the actual text that precedes all of the relational text that we're getting into today. And in the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these scriptures. The, the Martin Luther called this portion of scripture the Haustafel, which is my German's not good, but it means house table. <clears throat> and so Martin Luther said this is the, these are the basic domestic relationships that all of us must look at. And in the filling of the Holy Spirit must reflect in that or else we're not going to do them well. So it starts today as we look at marriage. Then we talk next week about parenting and children, relationship to parents. And then the third week into it, we're going to look at the daily occupation, work life, uh, chapter 6, 5 to 9. And so um, let's start today with looking at this fundamental relationship called marriage. 
I want to say at the outset that, that uh, we're far removed from the Paul and the Ephesus that were, were uh, looked at in this scripture. We're far removed from the, the Greek people, the Roman peoples. We're far removed from the text in, Hebrew, in Greek, I should say. We're far removed from it. And yet, uh, we're not unlike that culture in many ways. In fact, at this time in Ephesus, in, in Asia Minor, uh, around the time of Christ and afterward, and even before, marriage had fallen on really hard times. In the Hebrew culture, it had been upheld, except even in that place, there were schools of thought that were more liberal than others in terms of divorce, remarriage, fidelity, and so on. But in the pagan culture, which Ephesus was certainly a part of, and this little church was planted in the middle of it, they had had fallen on very hard times when it came to marriage and fidelity in marriage. It's not unlike today. And so there is this new church, just a, a decade or so old, as Paul writes the letter, and he's trying to encourage them about the, the Christian view of marriage, the Christian view of home life, and, and fathering, and being children, and, and being an employer, an employee, and so on. And so open your Bibles with me to chapter 5 of Ephesians, and let, let's begin to look at this text together. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to begin and jump right into it in verse 21 because it is actually a, the same sentence as verse 22. It's important to connect these two. And then would you stand with me as I read the, the Word of God to us today? So beginning in verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect her husband. God bless you, and may his word be blessed to us today. You may be seated. You'll notice in your in the sermon outline, in the blue sheet that's in your uh, bulletin, the sermon outline is very simple. It's, what does a spirit-filled wife look like? What does a spirit-filled husband look like? And what does a spirit-filled marriage look like? It is worth noting considering the first point, it is worth noting that verse 22 does not have the verb submit. I want you to notice that. It says it there in the NIV text, but it's not there in the Greek text. The verse 22 actually is a carryover of verse 21, that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the, the literal rendering of verse 22 is, wives to your own husbands in everything. 
So in other words, it's just a, a, a kind of a carryover submission to one another is the general attitude and environment of the church. And when it comes to specific roles in marriage, wives, to your own husbands as, as to the Lord. And uh, I recognize that there might be a whole host of reasons why these verses in verse 22 are hard for people to receive, especially women this morning. Many consider this uh, language absolutely antiquated, outdated, irrelevant. Uh, it, it doesn't apply. It's wrongly interpreted and so on. And uh, there's, there has been tons of distorted teaching and perverted practice that has come out of a justification because of this text and its wrong usage. So I am going to do what I see, I've seen so many others do. I am going to start by saying what this does not mean. And then we'll go on to talk about what uh, wives submit to your own husbands means in, in its authenticity, I hope. So first of all, I think Paul is not talking to husbands in verse 22. That's important to note. Uh, you know, when you come up to a stoplight and you look at your green light, red light, yellow light, you shouldn't be looking at somebody on the crossroad and what light they have, like we often do, anticipating the yellow to come so we can just trample it. You know, we, we should be looking at our light. Well, right in this text, husbands, put your ear, hands over your ears because God's not talking to you. He's talking to wives. Very important. Very important because, you see... It's never suggested that a husband should force submission upon his wife. Never in Scripture. It does not talk in this text about oppression, subjugation, or dominance. Either your wife gives you and offers you the gift of her submission in your marriage, or you don't get it. End of story. So take away all the perverted, domineering, chauvinistic attitudes that come out of this text. Put them all aside because they don't apply. I heard an amen. All right. <laughs> Secondly, Paul is not talking or, or teaching spiritual inequality. He is not teaching spiritual inequality. He speaks in other places, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. He's not talking here about your standing before God, husbands and wives. He's talking about functionality of a marriage and family life. Okay? Functionality and equality are not different. There's a functionality in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I have come to do my Father's will. Are they equal? Absolutely. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is the Father God? Yes. Do they have different functionality and role in the Trinity? Yes. So let's clarify that, that this is not talking about spiritual inequality. Se thirdly, Paul is not identifying gender-specific roles. I think this is very important to understand. That would uh, sometimes be seen as sexist or chauvinistic. He is not suggesting who should cook the meals, who should fix the car, who should work inside or outside of the home. Those thoughts have confused and trivialized biblical teaching on headship and submission. They have completely sidetracked the issue. And so all kinds of people are reacting to this text because they've seen it brought into the role of gender-specific roles. It has nothing to do with it. How that leadership and submission gets worked out in a marriage is actually a very, very unique song and dance for every couple, and it'll look differently 
in each marriage. Fourthly, Paul is not teaching here slavish obedience, mindless obedience from a wife to husband. When Paul says, submit to your husband as to the Lord, verse 22, or in everything, verse 24, he is not suggesting that it's mindless. It, is, it does not suggest that a wife does not question her husband. The attitude she does have, though, is the key, just as the attitude that he has in his leadership is the key. As to the Lord does not mean to talk to or submit to your husband as if he is Jesus. That is not what this means. Rather, it means that Jesus has put that husband in your life for a leadership role. Respect that role as part of your love for God and discipleship for Jesus. Just as you ought to children, respect that for your parents and employers, for your employees, for your employer. Next, Paul is not nullifying marriage as a partnership. Sometimes we get this hierarchy thinking and authoritarianism idea, and it nullifies partnership. This is the two becoming one. And so there should be dialogue, interaction, mutual decision-making. It is a foolish husband who makes decisions that affect the home without deep consultation, probing of his wife's thoughts, intuitions, and discernments. You are both answerable and responsible to the Lord for how your home operates and how your family operates. But somehow, in a mysterious way, we husbands are more answerable to God in the final analysis. Next, Paul is not suggesting that husbands must take the lead in all matters. Again, a confusion that comes out of this verse. A wife and husband should have equal opportunity and respect for each other's gifts and abilities in fulfilling all that is needed in the home and in the marriage. If one is better in finances, then let them take the lead in finances. If one is better in uh, food preparation, let them take the lead in food preparation. If one is better at home decor and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it does not have to do with uh, leadership in all matters. So what does Paul mean by submission in verses 22 to 24? What does a spirit-filled wife look like according to this passage? I, I want to state at the outset that, that we must not disconnect this scripture with all that Paul has been teaching in the first three chapters about being in Christ, about having all the blessings that we have in Christ, about being set apart as a child of God and as a servant of God. And so this gospel orientation in your life that comes from being bought by grace enters into your role in life, whether husband or wife or children or, and so on. And so, you, really, this is an extension of the gospel. And so what does this mean? Well, how does it get worked out? It means that a Christian woman being transformed by the Lord with an attitude of submission will have an attitude of submission toward her husband, seeing that his leadership in the family is God's will, and, and he's been placed there by God, so she should have this attitude of followership there. How it gets worked out is a very interesting thing. I think it's one of the mysteries of marriage, just as Christ's headship over the church is a mystery. It's hard to see sometimes in the church how it is that we are revering Jesus as the, the, the super pastor over the church, the one that is the shepherd over all. 
in, in a day-to-day operational basis, we don't see that because we get together and we, we make decisions and so on. But in a, in a similar matter, manner, uh, a husband's leadership of his wife and family is not something that is seen. It's a mystery. But inside, there is this attitude of knowledge that, that God has put roles and functions in this way. And so... Um, in this, in this uh, capacity, let me read to you a definition of a wife's submission to her husband. This comes from the book, This Momentary Marriage, by John Piper. He says, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. I think that's a good definition. It's, it's the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's important that husbands and wives do not fall off either side of the fence in their roles that are being defined in Ephesians 5. One author states it this way, In the home, the husband's loving, humble leadership or headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. So husbands, that's where you're going to fall off. One side of the fence, domination. Other side of the fence is is uh, negation or passivity. Wives, also it says, the wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by either usurping or servility. Don't fall off either side of the fence. Don't usurp his role and be a domineering force. But neither be this slave-servant kind of person that is going to just give over to things that aren't even in the will of God for your husband or your family. And so it's important that we get get together on this as husbands and wives, read the same blueprint, and understand God's order. Let's move along to the second point, the spirit-filled husband. At a formal banquet in London many years ago, Winston Churchill was one of the dignitaries invited, and they, they had this wonderful banquet, and then afterwards, the master of ceremonies had asked a very odd question of all the dignitaries. Every one of them had to stand up from the table and give his answer to the question. The question was, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? Kind of an odd question, isn't it? And and, uh, one by one, the dignitaries around the table stood. Winston Churchill was the last one to stand. And so he stood up, and he, he rose from his chair. He took the hand of his wife, Clemmy, who was beside him, and he said, I would want to be Lady Churchill's second husband? A wise answer, I think. It might sound a little sentimental, but Churchill really, in that response, reflects the kind of love that every wife wants from her husband. It is a reflection of the the wedding vows that we hear recited every wedding to love, honor, and cherish. Every wife wants to be cherished and nurtured above all others in that person's life, that husband's life. What does a spirit-filled husband look like? I'm not sure what the rest of you men feel like, but I find that the words in verses 22 to 24 directed at wives pale in comparison to the heavy calling that are found in verses 25 to 30 to us husbands. In comparison, Paul chooses to make for us Uh, Husbands, a comparison to Christ himself, to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's talk about what is 
Christ's love for the church like? Three things. Number one, it is a self-sacrificing love. And so Christ gave himself up for the church, and husbands, you and I, we should be giving ourselves up for our wives. That's our role. It means servant leadership. We give of ourselves for the sake of our wives. How do we do that? How do you do, husbands, at putting your agendas aside, putting your wants and appetites and desires aside, and serving sacrificially the needs and wants and desires of your wife? That's what this looks like. Secondly, Christ's love is a sanctifying love. In verse 26, it says, To make her holy. That's, that's the goal of Christ's love for us, is that we would not just stay the way we are, but that we would be sanctified and made holy. You see, the, the day that you two decided you were going to marry each other was the day that God decided who would be the primary agent in your sanctification. There is no other person on the face of this earth that God will use more than your wife or husband to to knock off those edges and to bring you into the kind of completion and, and uh, humility before Jesus that he wants. And so you see, there's a wrong attitude toward marriage in our day and age. We see it even in Christian circles. It's a kind of a contractual philosophy of marriage, and it's wrong. It's not biblical. The, the contractual philosophy of marriage is, is the kind that sees marriage as sort of a mutual alliance that is agreed upon for two people to pursue their own desires. In other words, it's a kind of a 50-50 thing. It's, it's saying, if, if you will do all of this for me, then I'll do this for you. But if you stop doing this for me, then, then I'm not obligated to do this for you. In other words, you make me happy and I'll make, I'll make you happy. It feels good. In fact, marriages can work this way. A contractual philosophy rather than a covenant love. You see, when, when Jesus entered into relationship with us, he stood at the altar of every sinner that we were, every sin, and he said, I, Jesus, take thee sinner to be my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse in sickness and in health to to love and to cherish until death do us part except that part never ends with Jesus because there is no death with Jesus but there is death with our marriage there is death with one of us passing away and that's why Piper calls his book this momentary marriage there is a relationship that trumps the marriage relationship, and it is the relationship that each of us has with Jesus Christ, for it lives on eternally. And we are called to pattern our love for one another after his love for us. It's not a contract. It's the kind of commitment love that's going to be so present in marriage that one day we present ourselves to, uh, uh, to, to Jesus as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. So it's a sanctifying love that Jesus has, and so do we. Sometimes, as husbands, that means that we are not primarily just concerned about the expressed needs of our wife or, or wants of our wife, but, but the real deeper needs. You see, my love for my wife is, is, should be so strong that I am committed to making her and seeing her become the woman of God that God wants her to be. 
And if she, like I as well, gets sidetracked into carnal, worldly pursuits, it should be the loving spouse that says, no, God has something better for us. Could, you, could we look at this again? And then the third kind of love in verses 28 to 30 is reflected as Christ's love is selfless. It's qualitatively different than human love. And it's so incredible because it's his instinctual love, his first responding love. That's Jesus' love for us. But that's not the way that we're wired. My instinctual love is for myself. You see, and that's why Paul argues this way. For no one ever hates his own body. He feeds and cares for it. That's our, that's our default. If I get thirsty, I give my body water. If I get hungry, I give my body food. If I get hurt, I look to heal my body. If I am hurting somewhere, I seek to take care of that area of my body. If I am tired, I will rest my body. And Paul is saying here that that same way that you do that for your own body, that you should cultivate that nurturing love for your wife. So intuitively in tune, so sensitive to your wife's needs and cares and concerns that you're able to be a first responder there. It's countercultural, it's counterintuitive, and it's counter to the way that we husbands usually operate. And so this scripture calls us to love as Jesus loves, to turn around and then love our wives that way, to wear our delegated authority from the Father the way that Jesus wore his delegated authority from the Father in servant-like self-giving, not falling into the trap of an over-domineering abuse of authority, nor the abdicating of our role and vacating our position. You see that, husbands, I know, I've been there, I know that there are some times when you are called to boldly go where no man has gone before. Sometimes you are called to walk into a, a situation, a trouble, a conflict in your family, your children, your, your wife, whatever, and, and it's intimidating. And you want to run and you want to vacate that. And God calls you to walk into that, that place and be the one who brings whatever is loving and whatever love requires in that situation. Finally, what does a, a spirit-filled marriage look like? I know that we're hurrying on in this text. I know that there are, are loads of things I'm not addressing. I know that there is so much being left unsaid about the Scripture, about the working out of that in, in problem marriages, in difficult situations. I recognize that. But it's important that we understand God's blueprint. And so Paul, in summary fashion, ends with a quotation from that incredible text in Genesis 2.24, which I, I pronounce over the couple every marriage I do. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And, and Jesus adds in Matthew 19, Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. And this text arises out of Genesis 2, this pre-fall state this before sin entered the world condition of a perfect marriage and um, marriage is meant to be you see an incredible picture of a deeper reality and so that's why Paul goes on to say this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church it's interesting he has gone through Several verses talking about marriage, and then he just pauses for a moment and says, Oh, you're not getting it. 
I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, marriage here on earth is a, a shadow of what our relationship with Jesus eternally is the reality of. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Our intimacy in marriage and our intimacy with the Lord are so very connected. You cannot walk closely with your spouse and with the Lord if you are not walking closely with uh, your spouse, you will have difficulty walking closely with the Lord and so on. In the introduction to Piper's book on marriage, he, he starts by a, a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, engaged to be married to a woman named Maria von Weidemeyer. But the marriage never took place because he was arrested in Nazi Germany for involvement in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he was hanged on April the 9th, 1945. And as after Piper shares that little story, biographical sketch of bon, Bonhoeffer's death, he says this, that he skipped the shadow on the way to the reality. You see, he skipped the shadow, this momentary marriage that he would have had on earth to Maria on the way to the reality, which was his eternal marriage with Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes his scripture by trying to bring us back down to earth to this reality of how a spirit-filled marriage gets worked out. And he says in verse 33, however, going back to the matter at hand, he says, each of you should, look, should love his wife as, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It is interesting and noteworthy that the verb that Paul uses respect in speaking about the wife and what she offers to her husband as a gift and the verb to love which is the gift that a husband offers to his wife freely they're two different verbs and that's why this gentleman uh, Emerson Egerich's in his book Love and Respect identifies uh, these two because he believes and he writes the whole book on it very good book to read as a couple, he says that because that is the primary need of the wife and the husband. And he says that if you get this right, it'll do three things for your marriage. And uh, he says, number one, it'll control the craziness in your marriage. The crazy cycle, he calls it. He describes it in detail. And if you've been married for more than a day, no, I'm just kidding. If you've been married for more than <laughs> a year, <clears throat> you might know a little bit about the craziness, the crazy cycle. It's incredible that we have the capacity to harm and hurt the one that we love the most. Secondly, he says that, that if we get this love and respect thing right, that it will energize your spouse. It will energize each other. Because there's something about that word love, the way that Christ defines it, the way Paul talks about it, that is exactly what your wife needs from you. And there's something about that word respect, the way it's described by Paul here, that is exactly what wives you, your husbands desperately need. And sometimes when I'm sitting before a couple that is going through marital strife, and uh, there's a lot of water that's been under the bridge already, those are the two gifts that have stopped being given regularly. And then the third thing that he says will 
it does if you get this love and respect thing right is that you'll start to enjoy the rewards of a godly marriage because you see these conditions must be met to bring down all the blessing that's going to be upon your marriage and so I commend that book to you for summer reading love and respect how can we pray for you as married couples how can you pray for one another in your marriage is there something in the scripture that we've looked at today that, that has been uh, tweaking your memory on something that you need to examine in your marriage? Or maybe something today that the Holy Spirit has just kind of knocked on the, the door of your heart and said, you know, this is something you need to talk to your spouse about. I hope that I have fairly presented what I believe the scripture is teaching without giving way to the kinds of attitudes that are uh, gender-specific, role-identifying uh, foolishness that has more to do with a cosmetic effect instead of the deep understanding of what leadership from a husband and submission from a wife truly needs to look like. As I said earlier, God uses our spouse. Okay, Aliona. It, it's a good question, Aliona. And uh, in fact, the fact is that we're all sinners. And the fact is is that we bring to our, our, our role in marriage an incompleteness because of our sin. So that in the ideal world, this is the submission that a wife should bring to her husband. And this is the leadership that a husband should bring to his wife. And as we look at Jesus Christ's relationship with the church and we see his role perfectly performed, we, we should be able to respond perfectly but we're the sinners in the, in the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, so we don't get it right in our relationship with God. And similarly, the two sinners in the marriage don't get it right in the submission and in the leadership capacity. And so, so every marriage is incomplete, and it's not a perfect picture of Jesus and the church. But that is the key challenge is that, as again, we, we say, verse 22 to 24, husbands... Just, just kind of, that's not your gig. That's not your calling. That's a wife's calling. In verse 25 to 30, husbands, you read that part. And, and wives, you, you don't read that part. Focus on your part, and uh, God will bless the marriage. So I want to say as a, as a conclusion, and then I want to pray for you, there is no relationship so intense as marriage. There is no relationship so important on earth and in society as marriage. There is no relationship that holds such potential for good as marriage. And there is no relationship that has the capacity for such hurt as marriage. And so let me pray for our marriages as we conclude. Would you stand with me? Our gracious God, we, we come to you this, this morning and we, we acknowledge that, uh, first of all, we acknowledge that we're, we're, all, we're all sinners. We, we, we fall in our responsibilities to bring to marriage the, the kind of respect or love that, that our spouse needs. And uh, God, because of it, uh, our children don't see the perfect examples in us. We also confess that apart from you, we have nothing. We sang it earlier. 
we confess that that's, that's true in our marriage too. We, we desperately need to look past our spouse on occasion and trust in your almighty hand, O oh God, that you will do the work in that person's life as we personally focus on our responsibility under you. We ask you, Lord, for those marriages that in this morning are, are really on the brink or are suffering, are going through misunderstanding and hurt, I pray in the name of Jesus that your word would powerfully impact them, your spirit would move into them, that they would bring to one another an attitude of submission and love, and that you might bring healing, O oh God. And we pray, Father, that all of us would, would walk in this reverence for Christ, this fear of the Lord, and that our, our marriages would be an extension of our walk with you as humble servants. Lord, we just commit our, our families to you. We uh, pray for single people that uh, might be looking for a spouse. We ask you to help them to have a keen eye on your, your mandate, your calling, uh, what you require in Scripture. And I pray that you'd bless them as they, as they wait for your, your choosing. Bless those that are getting ready for marriage and getting married this summer and, and just anoint them with the Spirit of God to, to love and, and cherish each other as they get ready for that step. We commit our church family to you and all our loved ones that are visiting today in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. People of God, go in peace.